campsite media. Hello, can you hear me? Right. Okay. Hello. Hello. So, what do you want me to say? Um, just um. Hello. Chameleon. Season four. Scam likely. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> Wednesday, October twenty sixth, two thousand sixteen, the day before the takedown. There's a sealed indictment in federal court naming 56 individuals in five call center businesses in India. Dave is in Chicago, a city he has been visiting frequently since that first trip two years earlier when he came to do surveillance on the runners. This time, though, it's different. The stakes are higher. Now, Dave's been in the military. He has seen some dramatic stuff, but this is thrilling even for him. He's working out of the 26th floor of a glass office tower in the western suburbs. It's mission control for the takedown operation. Dave walks in. It's buzzing inside. They had a big conference room set up for us, kind of like our war room that could seat like 60 people. So it actually almost looked like our own little call center in there, honestly. It just had tables set up with people's workstations. They had to actually go in there and put lines in for them to be able to plug their laptops in and, and work. There are about 150 agents there from all around the country. Dave, Chris, and Dylan need all the help they can get. They're going to be arresting a lot of people, searching a lot of apartments, ripping data off a lot of phones and hard drives. There are a lot of lawyers there too, including Hope Olds from the DOJ, who's supervising the whole operation. I think the day before there was a pre-meet and Hundreds of agents were came into the Chicago field office, and that was where Dave's storytelling came into came in quite handy because he got up and told the story of the of the scheme. Because some some of these agents are just there to make an arrest, right? They're not involved in the investigation what, whatsoever, so they're there to sort of support the case. So he tells the entire story. He gets people. He moves people in in the way that he he um, relayed the the scheme, and and then people just started figuring out what roles they had and what they needed. Dave is also anxious. He wants all the agents to understand exactly what they need to do, not come up with ideas on their own. Of course, you have uh, a lot of good questions, a lot of different questions coming from agents. You got to listen to all of them. You know, inevitably, uh, you run into two people you never want to see, right? And that's the, the good idea fairy and her evil twin sister, the what if fairy. And you have to sort of just swat them down and say, no, that's not how, no, just do this. What if they do this? Just do this, okay? And when Dave goes to bed that night, he's aware that the success or failure of what's about to happen is now mostly out of his hands. You don't know all these agents that are knocking on these doors for you in your case. So that's my really my biggest concern is that somebody can be a little overzealous and can really screw up your case. You know, um, somebody else can incorrectly gather evidence on your case and something can get thrown out in court. Having so many moving pieces, um, inevitably you're like, something, something is going to go wrong. I just hope it's something small. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, 
This is Scam Likely, the fourth season of Chameleon. I'm Yudijit Bhattacharji. Hello. Hello. You have to make an immediate payment. The minimum amount is $2,000. $2,000. $11,000. Oh my God. I mean, come on. Don't hang up the call. Just be on the line. Episode 6, Get the Bad Guys. When Dave woke up the next morning, way before sunrise, he went over the plan he'd made with Chris and Dylan. He'd rehearsed it countless times in his head. Now it was time to put it into action. Ideally, every agent was knocking on a door at exactly the same time a lightning strike on the entire scamming network of criminals the investigators wanted to take down. Surprise was the key element, the best way to ensure that the arrests went smoothly. Dave is a member of the DHS SWAT team. He knew the risks involved in going out to make an arrest. Knocking on uh, apartment doors can be a little sketchy at times because um, there's always that possibility the person inside doesn't want to go to jail, right? At the end of the day, that person's in their mind. They're going to go in a cage somewhere, and that fight-or-flight response may kick off. Dave had a plan to minimize that risk. It's better for us to hit a house when a person's still in bed, right? They're not awake. They're not, they don't have their wits about them because they're in dreamland, right? So when that door, you know, you hear police with the warrant open the door, and you startle that person awake, the, they may or may not think to run over and grab that gun, right? So the takedown was scheduled for 6 a.m., but groggy criminals aren't the only advantage to going that early in the morning. When someone is arrested, the clock starts ticking on when they have to be booked and brought before a judge. But Dave and his colleagues were still hoping to get some information out of the subjects before taking them to court. You arrest them, they get dressed, they calm down, you give them a cup of coffee or a cigarette, whatever they need to calm down. And then you have that opportunity to interview them for two, three, or four hours, whatever you need, get consent and actually get the evidence you need before they go to jail. You know, people are a lot more comfortable sitting in their living room talking to you. It's easier to build rapport. Um, you don't have very much time to do that if you arrest somebody at lunchtime because you've got to get them in the car and get them down to the judge. So that morning, Dave was ready for his part in the takedown. He and a few other agents gathered in a Starbucks parking lot, checked their gear, and went over the plan one last time. The do's and don'ts of making a stealth arrest, they didn't have to review those. Those were tattooed in their minds. Don't slam the door when you get out of your car. Turn your lights off when you get there. Don't attract any unnecessary attention. The agents drove out in rental cars to an apartment complex a few minutes away where there was a cluster of buildings with hundreds of apartments, many rented by Indian immigrants. The agent's target here was Mitesh Patel, the boss of the runner crews. Mitesh lived in an apartment building that looked like a motel. The building entrance opened onto a landing. Mitesh lived on the second floor, which meant the arrest was riskier. Because you don't have a lot of place to go if bullets are coming back through the door, right? So you either jump over the landing or you dive down the stairs in some instances, and neither one of those are where you want to be. Dave's already scouted this setting. He gives it a once-over, one last time. I remember sitting there for, for a minute, maybe, by maybe 10 minutes. I was there early and watching the house, and then I could kind of see our agents pulling in. 
Dave makes sure all the other agents are ready. They enter Mitesha's building and walk briskly up the stairs, find Mitesha's door. They stand in front of it, hands on their holsters. Dave knocks. Police the warrant, open the door. Police the warrant, open the door. Police the warrant, open the door. Footsteps. The door opens a crack. It's Mitesh. They woke him up. What is this all about, he wants to know. But really, he knows what it's all about. He doesn't put up any resistance. You wake up, you get a, you know, you get a 400 lumen flashlight in your face. You're kind of, whoa, what's going on? He didn't seem shocked that this was happening. Dave walks into the apartment. He's no longer worried that somebody will come at him with a gun. There's a kitchen on the right and a living room on the left. A small hallway leads to two bedrooms, one for Mitesh and his wife, the other one for their two kids. They were both um, dead asleep. Um, they're in their pajamas. As soon as Dave and the other agents step inside, they see something potentially incriminating, lying in plain sight. Literally within, like, arm's reach of the front door was a stack of cash, like a few thousand dollars, like hundreds, sitting there. In another room, they spot a printer and fake IDs scattered around. We're like, oh, okay, well, they're using these fake IDs most likely to go out and pick up money orders in somebody else's name. Um, and I was like, oh, we'll talk about that later on. Dave wonders, what about Mitesh's phone? the one that they've tracked calling into the call centers in India. I just pulled out my government cell phone and called his cell phone. And in the corner, right by where they were sitting, like two feet away, it was charging uh, an iPhone. And I believe it was probably the same iPhone that we had searched before. Um, but uh, it rang, and on his screensaver, it said Matesh Patel in like gold writing, like a slot machine. It's like, boom. I was like, oh, I think that's pretty good probable cause that that's his phone, and it's in the house. More after the break. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. 
You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. Chicago was the center of the action on the morning of Thursday, October 27, 2016. But it wasn't the only place where agents were making arrests. As Dave was marching Mitesh Patel out of his apartment building, Dylan was in Anaheim, California, getting ready to knock on another door. His target that morning was a man named Viraj Patel, a prolific runner who had been observed driving all over California laundering money. Early morning, we set up on a big apartment complex in Anaheim. Quiet morning. It's Dylan and four other agents. They find Viraj's door. Dylan had the honor of announcing their presence. I remember the knock on the door sort of echoed through the courtyard, you know, police with a warrant. And uh, neighbors started looking out. The door opens. Viraj looks stunned. The agents tell him he's under arrest. Soon they're sitting down in his living room. Dylan shows him printouts of emails that Viraj has exchanged with scammers. Viraj tries to explain it all. His phone and computer were hacked, he says. He's innocent. Dylan's a courteous guy. He listens, but he knows what he's going to find. This is what we would find time and time again when we obtained a search warrant and searched a residence of a runner. You would find just a backpack, and typically a backpack would have a couple of phones, um, fake IDs, cash, and a few other items for quick, um, quick road trip. That was all the evidence Dylan needed. And it still strikes me, some of the names on these fake IDs, it was like a, a comedy contest. The call centers, you know, they have a very good sense of humor, and they're always seem to be practical jokers with one another. And so one of the names of the IDs we found in the house was the name Alex Butt, which they had printed on a social security card, and he had a fake ID to go with it. You know, the other conspirators used all kinds of random names. One of them was Vincent Flowers, and just ridiculous names. Around the time that Dave and Dylan were making arrests, Chris was busy making one of his own. He was in Chicago that morning, but not with Dave to take down Mitesh Patel. Chris's target was a man named Hardik Patel. Now, just a side note here, all these guys named Patel, they're not related. It's a very common last name in Gujarat, the state in India where many of the scammers were from, even more common than Smith in America. Anyway, what was unique about Hardik Patel was that he had experience at both the Indian and the American ends of the scam. He had worked at one of the call centers in India before moving to the U.S. to help with the money laundering side of the business. Chris was the one who had pieced together Hardik's role in the scam. We tried our best to, to put each agent in a position where they'd have the best success with a subject that they understood and knew well. And Hardik was, um, was, kind of, was kind of my guy. So I had gotten into his email accounts. I felt like I knew him. I felt like I knew his story really well and had a, had a, a good idea of how he was going to approach the interview. It was still pitch black when Chris and a handful of agents rolled into Hardik's apartment complex. It's a middle-class neighborhood with a large Indian immigrant population. And everyone around is already up and about. Which kind of was a little off-putting for me. Even though it was 6 in the morning, there were like people getting their kids out the door to go to school, um, which I didn't particularly like. But as soon as it was, it was time for us to, to hit the door, we 
rolled up and we brought a uniformed police officer with us. Hardik Patel had a young child and he was already awake. So explained that we were there with an arrest warrant. He was very curious and, you know, I said, listen, I'd love to talk to you about this, but in order for me to tell you more and for us to have a conversation, we're going to have to go over your rights and everything else. And so he agreed to, to waive his rights and to speak with me. And, um, and then he actually agreed to allow us to search the apartment and to look at his, his phone and his laptop um, because he insisted right from the start that he was not involved in anything nefarious or illegal. And please, you know, look at my laptop, look at my phones. I promise I'm not doing anything wrong. And so I just kind of bled him slowly. Chris read through the list of people who were indicted, including the two masterminds at the top of the scam. Hitesh Patel and Shaggy. Hardik insisted he didn't know any of them. So after about 20 minutes of that, of just letting him tell his story, I pulled out an email from my folder and slid it across the table to him. I said, do you mind reading that for me? And the color just drained out of his face. And he handed it back to me. I said, do you want to, you want to talk a little bit more about this? And he kind of just sat there and I said, you, know, you understand as I had told you before when we started this that lying to a federal agent is another crime and he just kind of slumped he said okay I know Shaggy by early afternoon Chris was back at mission control on the 26th floor of the office tower in the Chicago suburbs Dave was there too struggling to get some peace and quiet people were coming up trying to Tell me what they'd done for that day. Yeah. And I was like, that's great. All your packets are turned in. Like, yeah, let's, let's like have a Coke and a smile. We'll talk tomorrow because my brain's fried right now. The takedown involved arrests at 20 locations in eight states. Reports of arrests made elsewhere in the country were already coming in. And there were some good stories. One of the more exciting arrests Dave learned about had gone down in Fort Myers, Florida, where agents had gone to handcuff a runner. When they were taking him into custody, they were surprised to see his teenage daughter trying to run out of the house with her backpack. She kept insisting that she was just trying to get to school on time. Searching her backpack, agents found fake IDs tucked in a chemistry book. But more than hear stories from the other agents, Dave was ready to just take it all in. Yeah, we wanted to sit down and like watch the DOJ press conference. Good morning, everyone. Today we're here to announce the first ever multi-jurisdictional enforcement action targeting the Indian call center scam industry. This is Leslie Caldwell, then the Assistant Attorney General for DOJ's Criminal Division. She's in a conference room at the DOJ headquarters in Washington, D.C., blocks away from the Capitol building. A few dozen reporters are in attendance. And what Caldwell says, basically, is that this is a big deal. 15,000 victims over $250 million in stolen money, and now a lot of arrested scammers. But a reporter pipes up with a question. Okay, you arrested a bunch of low- and mid-level scammers, but what does that actually accomplish? Can't the scammers just replace them all tomorrow? Aren't you playing whack-a-mole? You're right that a lot of the folks who we're arresting today can be replaced by other people. But I think the message of today's takedown, this is the first time we've done this in, in a coordinated nationwide way. And I think the message of this is that folks in India who are engaged in this activity and in the United States should take away is that we are watching and we are, we're paying attention to this and we're taking appropriate action. 
That night, Dave and Chris and some of the other agents went to a pub to get steaks and celebrate. The story of the arrests made the pages of the New York Times and the National Evening News. But keep the date in mind here. It was October 27, 2016, less than two weeks before the presidential election. The country's attention was fixed firmly on political news. But the guys who gave a shit were fine with that. They didn't see the American public as the primary audience for the press conference. It wasn't about, like, getting the pat on the back. I just wanted somebody to say that to scare these guys. Yeah. Like, that was what it was about. It was really shock and awe. It's like, hey, that's great, the, the high fives and, you know, the, the two days of uh, extra uh, you know, annual leave that I'll get later on. Those will come down the road. But really, it's like you guys really have to, like, just crush their soul right now for anybody watching overseas or here that wants to participate in this. they got to be like, holy crap. And that holy crap effect was still necessary because as Leslie Caldwell had made clear at the DOJ press conference, there was still a lot of work left to do. More than half of the indicted individuals were in India. That would be an operation for another day, and it would depend on international cooperation that went beyond anything the guys who gave a shit could do on their own. 56 indicted suspects, 32 believed to be in India, 21 in custody in the US. But there were still a few suspects in the United States who were missing the investigators were going to have to track them down. That's after the break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold? and breathe. You get into ice water, and instead of like freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death. Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. Throughout the investigation, Dave, Dylan, and Chris had been dealing with a challenge. Sometimes, the people they were following would just disappear. There was a specific instance in sort of the Maryland region where an individual was approached by law enforcement um, after multiple trips to many different stores linked to many different victims of, of telefraud. Um, as soon as law enforcement approached them, um, his boss came to know it, and he was immediately sent out, I believe that night, on a plane to India. And that happened a few different times. Um, so it, that was definitely a way that they controlled um, law enforcement investigations. Uh, they simply would fly the person out of the country. So 
We absolutely did not want that to happen in any of the 24 who were later arrested and convicted. So the agents needed to tie up the loose ends quickly. Luckily, they had Dylan, the expert web sleuth, the guy who could track anyone down. Chris and Dave put it to Dylan as a challenge. They would kind of use uh, reverse psychology on me, and they would goad me and say, you're never going to find this, you'll never figure it out. And, you know, that obviously would churn my wheels a little bit. And um, I, I just did not, I could not stand the idea of fugitives hanging out in the wind in a case like this with so many victims. One of the few people involved in the scam who wasn't Indian or Indian-American was a man named Jerry Norris. Norris used to run a business that generated leads for telemarketers as well as scammers, which is how he came into contact with Shaggy. Later, Norris supervised a crew of runners to help Shaggy launder money stolen from victims. The agents had failed to locate him on takedown day, but they eventually learned he was living somewhere in the San Francisco Bay Area and sometimes went to check his email at the San Jose Public Library. Dylan showed up at the library one day. It is a massive, massive library. And um, somehow, some way, Jerry Norris was sitting on like the third floor. And we spotted him across the, the courtyard. It's a huge open area in the middle of the library. And we see him across the way. But Dylan and this other agent with him were in plain clothes. They decided it would look very bad and could be potentially dangerous if they tried to arrest Jerry Norris right then and there. So they called the local police for help. Dylan was worried that Norris would get up and leave and that they would lose him. So he kept a close eye on him. You know, I, I hid behind a bookshelf and hoped for the best and kept my eye out to see if he would grow suspicious. And then Jerry Norris got up from the seat, walked across the courtyard, and stepped onto the escalator going down. Dylan is in pursuit, trying to look nonchalant, hoping not to draw any attention. Norris gets out of the building, with Dylan shadowing him. And then Norris stops, pulls out a pack of cigarettes, and lights one. This is Dylan's chance. There aren't many people watching now, so he goes up to Norris and tells him quietly that he's under arrest. Across the country, other agents were tracking down the other fugitives. But there was one guy who they just couldn't trace. He was maybe the hardest nut to crack of all, a man named Jagdish Chaudhary. He was an incredibly committed runner. He had practically lived out of the back of a Honda for two years. He had no papers and no fixed address. In the days leading up to the takedown, Agents had found out that Jagdish was living in Orange Beach, right on the border between Florida and Alabama. Chris remembers Jagdish was under constant surveillance. Guy was, you know, he worked, you know, 16-hour, 18-hour, 20-hour days, whatever, and it appeared that there was an apartment where a number of employees of this gas station were, it was kind of like a flop house. It was like just, you know, a place where you'd go back and take a four-hour nap in between shifts at the, at the convenience store. Um, and he had worked every day, and the expectation was that he would be working that morning of takedown. They would arrest him there at the store. But when the agents showed up on the morning of October the 27th at the gas station, there was no Jagdish. 
It was like his one day off of the month or, you know, quarter or whatever it was. But they did have his number, so they called him. Say, hey, you need to come talk to us. Um, you know, this is, this is Homeland Security Investigations. He got freaked out again. Turns out later we find out about his immigration status. He's in the country illegally. He has no status. He hears immigration and customs enforcement or Homeland Security is coming to look for you and needs to talk to you. And he went and stole um, kind of a common car that the people who worked at the store used. It was owned by the, the, the convenience store's owner or, or his manager. But he basically got into this minivan and drove it as far away as he could until it ran out of gas, ditched it in a parking lot at like a movie theater in Alabama and went into the wind. And, uh, and then we bullied Dylan into finding him as well. Chris and Dave would do their reverse psychology trick on Dylan. They'd goad him with, you know what, there's no way you can track down this guy. Let's just forget it. Which meant, of course, Dylan had no choice but to do everything he possibly could to prove them wrong. Dylan deduced, through his usual sleuthing, that Jagdish could be in Alabama, in Montgomery, Alabama. You know, that's a long ways away from California. And so the main thing I needed to do is to convince somebody to go to Montgomery, Alabama with me. So, you know, we had all, we were all weary at this point, traveled all around for years. Um, all of us had really strong wives who held the fort down at home for years working this case. Dylan convinced another agent named Alan to go searching in Alabama with him. It was really just a hunch. Dylan didn't have anything solid. And so I'm sort of trying to sweet talk Alan. Yeah, yeah, we I got a couple addresses. I think we have a, I think we've got them. We've got them narrowed down. And so really the, the plan was to go to every single gas station morning and night in Montgomery, Alabama. And there are a lot of gas stations. It was a crazy plan. And only Dylan could have had the faith to think that it was going to work. The way Dave and Chris tell the story, Dylan and the other agent were in Atlanta for a court hearing when Dylan said, hey, why don't we go over to Montgomery and look for this guy? Dave and Chris gave Dylan a hard time about it when I asked. And the hunch that you'd find him at a gas station was based on what? That's what he was qualified to do. Um... That's what he had been doing when he fled. Well, you had a tip. There, there was some chatter. Um, we, we had... <laughs> Come on, man. It was, gut. Very, it was a gut feeling. That was very um, vague tips. <laughs> um, As somebody told you. He most doesn't want, most he, of the guys that we right. met, we talked to, they, they basically said, like, I met so-and-so when I was working in a gas station. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was working at, you mm-hmm. know, I was working at, at this place. He, he, do, he doesn't want Alan to know how much of a wing and a prayer this yeah, was. Like, like, yeah. He doesn't want Alan to listen to this and, and be upset that he dragged him yeah. out in the middle of a tropical storm. Really what Dylan knew is that the guy had cashed out a bank card in Savannah, Georgia, on the Atlantic coast. Then he drove a stolen vehicle and ditched it halfway between Montgomery and Savannah. So Dylan assumed that's where someone in Montgomery came to pick Jagdish up. Anyway, Dylan managed to convince Alan to go with him. They drove all the way to Montgomery. The first night was an experience. Um, we started going from gas station to gas station. You know, some fairly dangerous places in certain parts of Montgomery. And uh, I remember, like, second stop in, we're going to this gas station at night, and uh, two pit bulls 
basically ran up on us. Definitely thought they were going to attack us. Um, so we got in the car and um, on to the next gas station. Sort of struck out that night, so I'm sort of sort of feeling it. I'm like, it's okay, Alan. We're gonna, we're going to find him first thing in the morning, you know. And uh, I know where he is. I know where he is. <laughs> we <laughs> next morning, we went to one gas station. He's not there. Second stop, we pull up to a gas station, and Alan gets out, and he goes in the gas station, and it, it must have blown his mind. So he came racing out, just like pointing secretly. He, like, like he couldn't believe what he saw. And uh, so Jagdish was in there. So we, once again, we needed to call some marked units so they know we're not trying to rob a gas station and playing close. So we called the local PD who were great, and they came out and uh, assisted us with the arrest. Um, sure enough, Jagdish was there working the counter. By the end of November 2016, all of the indicted suspects believed to be in the United States were in federal custody. And their options didn't look great. You know, they felt comfortable talking to me and they were like, sir, do something. Please, please save me from this madness. I didn't mean to do this. I didn't even know what was going on. And I was like, let me clear it out. First of all, I am just an interpreter. I cannot do anything for you. If anyone can do anything for you, it's the man next to me in the suit. That's next time on Scam Likely. Chameleon is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Scam Likely was produced and written by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, and me, Udigit Patacharji. Callie Hitchcock and Yiwin Lai Tremuin were our associate producers. The show was fact-checked by Sarah Ivry. Sound design and original music by Mark McAdam. Additional music by Samba Jean-Baptiste. Special thanks to Campside's operations team, Aliyah Papes and Doug Slavin. The executive producers at Campside are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Josh Dean, and Adam Hoff. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.